Welcome to the Faith and Money podcast with Keith Connolly and Crystal Wampler. Faith and Money is a podcast where we discuss the relationship of money, wealth, and generosity with the Bible. The goal of this podcast is to equip believers in Jesus Christ to honor the Lord with their wealth, Proverbs 3.9. We will explore topics like the true meaning of wealth and its biblical uses. Last week, we were excited to release our first guest interview on the Faith and Money podcast. We had a dynamic conversation with Dr. Jacob Daniel on how our view of money is related to our doctrine of man and the image of God. If you haven't already, please check it out. Thank you, Crystal. You know, our hosts love to receive your emails with your comments about the show and your money questions. We strive to be biblically based and and a resource for you with financial wisdom and are proud to bring some of the comments we bring, we receive in our inbox to the show. Uh, And Crystal, why don't you go ahead and introduce our question of the day? Sure, Keith, thanks. Ruth from Lawton, Oklahoma writes, I've been offered a job as an independent contractor. I'm not entirely certain what this means. What is the difference between an employee and an independent contractor? Yeah, I mean, Ruth, this is a very big question, and it's going to differ depending on what state you're in. Crystal and I are are in California, and and it's very difficult for most people to become an independent contractor or or self-employed, and every state will define what an employee is differently. Uh, But the difference between an employee and an independent contractor uh, really deals with several tests. And I'm not an expert on these things. I'm not an employment lawyer or an HR specialist. But basically uh, speaking, you know, an employee is someone whose time uh, and activity is controlled by someone else. Uh, And uh, the with an employee. Uh, the employer is required to pay for certain things like half of the payroll tax and provide other benefits, whereas an independent contractor is going to be primarily responsible for their own expenses uh, and uh, will be able to do other things that an employee is not able to do, like control their own time and activity. Um, Some of the benefits or the differences between an employer employee and a contractor, uh, the contractor is going to be able to deduct any expenses they incur in the course of their work. So for my business, for example, I'm paying, you know, some money every month for my financial planning software. I get to deduct that from my income on my taxes. As an independent contractor, you can either be, you know, a sole proprietor or perhaps an LLC or a and you can deduct those expenses and you're going to file what's called a Schedule C, uh, which is where you're going to list all of your business income and and reduce that by your expenses. As an independent contractor, you're going to be able or required to pay your entire payroll tax, which includes your Social Security and Medicare. As an employee, you pay half and the employer pays half, but as an independent contractor, you're going to have to pay that 15.3% in total, plus any income tax that you incur as as being uh, an income producer. Uh, 
And as an employee, you're going to be potentially receiving other benefits like health insurance, uh, a 401k, and as an independent contractor, that's totally up to you. What I can tell you is that if you're going to be an independent contractor, you're going to want to keep careful record of any expenses, you know, track your business miles, any expenses, have receipts, have spreadsheets, and just keep careful track of that so it's easier for you to uh, do your taxes. And if you are able to produce a really good income, you really need to track your expenses well so that you have enough money left over to pay taxes. And you may even want to talk with a tax professional about uh, calculating paying your taxes every three months or on a quarterly basis, just because I know that there have been plenty of my clients as independent contractors who've gotten in trouble because they're going to have a sizable tax bill, you know, payroll and income tax, and they don't have the money, and then they end up getting on payment schedule with the IRS and with their state if taxes apply, and then, then that comes with penalties and interest, and so you really just want to keep careful track of that. It sounds more scary than it is, especially if you keep track of that and have a process. And if you have questions on that, I would suggest you reach out to a, a um, CPA or an enrolled agent tax professional to get you on the right track with that. Thank you for the question, Ruth. We pay that we, we pay that this helps you. We hope that this helps you make a decision on whether to take this opportunity. In today's episode, we will be interviewing Reverend James Zazaro on the topic of premarital counseling, and we will also be answering viewers' questions. Reverend James Zazaro is a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He has pastored Calvary OPC of Cape May in New Jersey for over 26 years. He is also the director of the Boardwalk Chapel, the summer boardwalk ministry through which he met his wife, Kristen. He graduated from Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thanks for having me. James, our listeners would like to hear about your experience in ministry. How often do you perform, or can you give us a little of experience, and how often do you perform premarital counseling? I've been in ministry as an ordained minister since 1995. Um, before that, I had spent some time as a youth pastor um, just outside New York City and then in various internships. So I've essentially, my, my primary job has been in ministry since about 1987, um, back when I was in Bible college, but as, as an ordained minister since 1995. Um, in 2000, I became a um, a chaplain in the United States Army in the New Jersey Army National Guard, spent 10 years doing that. And then I've been running the Boardwalk Chapel as its director um, for the last 10 years. In terms of marriage, as a pastor, it's kind of as people grow up in the church, um, you know, so it depends on how many youth you have, how many weddings do you do. It's been fun that I've just started that. I've been here long enough now that I'm doing weddings and baptizing the children of children that I baptized when they were born. So that's been kind of kind of fun doing that. But in terms of weddings in the church, probably maybe one a year or so. Every once in a while, you'll get a few. Um, in the Boardwalk Chapel, I don't do weddings um, for legal reasons. People come up to the chapel all the time and say, can we do, can, you know, do you marry people? 
and with laws against um, or concerned about that I can only do weddings between um, a heterosexual couple um, and with homosexual marriage, that's a big problem that we would have on the boardwalk. So we purposely do not do weddings of any kind to keep us out of that problem. In the military, I did the vast majority of my weddings um, because not only do, for one, you just have a larger pool. Uh, you know, you're, you're a solo chaplain for about 600 or more soldiers. So there's just a lot more people compared to my congregation that's been between like 75 and 100 over the years. But when deployments ramp up, guys tend to quickly get married so that their fiance is taken care of legally um, with insurance and otherwise. So in the multiple deployments that my unit went through, I would usually do about a half dozen to a dozen weddings before deployments. Um, so that's where the vast majority of weddings I did, which makes it a little bit difficult because those aren't always Christian marriages. Many times it's just two non-Christians getting married. Um, they just want to get married. So I, I still do premarital counseling um, with them, but I do a much shortened version than what I would do with members of my own congregation who are getting married. What it's is that really shortened version? It's oh, a go really ahead. great opportunity for you to share the love of Christ with these couples in the military. I know it's not easy being a chaplain these days, and but you know it's it's such an important and vital ministry. Yeah, and that's that's given great opportunities. I still have. I've been out of the military since 2010, and I still have soldiers calling me who I served with back then. So this is 12 or more years later. Um, I'll get the middle of the night calls from guys who are depressed. I'll get guys calling about their marriages and things through Facebook and others. I've stayed very close with a lot of my soldiers. And Lord gave, gave me great opportunities to build lasting relationships with my soldiers. Yeah. I imagine with an, a last name like Zozaro, it's not a very common name. You probably have these people looking you up on social media or whatever. Or or do you have a more... Um, clear way that they can contact you or do they just reach out to you over social media really just through, through facebook a lot of them just have friended me through that or uh, just because i haven't left churches my phone number stayed the same so the number all the contact information they had for me back in 2000 is still all the same contact information i'm one of the few people on the face of the earth i think that i'm still using a juno email when it first came out free most of them don't even know what that is so it, be, being behind the times technologically has helped people stay in touch with me because I never change numbers or emails. Or things. Fair point. Fair point. You know, how often are you doing premarital counseling, you know, lately? In the last um, with, within the last two years, I've done a few weddings, one for my own son um, with him and, and his fiance grew up in our church and, um, his sister-in-law, a group of our kids all kind of grew up together. So I did some premarital counseling for that couple as they were getting get, ready to get married. I think the year before that, I may have done um, two or three weddings as well. So there's been a few um, over the last few years. Yeah. So when you've been doing premarital counseling, you know, you're, you're meeting with these couples multiple times, you're discussing multiple topics, you know, the purpose of marriage, children, um, sex, money, uh, you know, what What have you done in the area of premarital counseling and finances? Um, when, when I do, my, my basic premarital counseling is like for my soldiers and things. They're, most of the times they're not Christians. So my short one, I think Crystal kind of asked that earlier, is I basically go through here's 
God's design for marriage. So we look at that, just a quick overview. Um, the responsibilities God gives for husbands, the responsibilities God gives to wives, and then just a few key tips of how to build a strong and lasting marriage. Because many times they don't want to spend a whole lot of time. So I, I'm careful about, you know, I usually remind them, whether you believe in God or not, God does exist, and he's going to hold you accountable for fulfilling your duties, so you better know what they are. And where I get into finance, and that is under the husband's duties, I talk about the husband, one of the responsibilities a husband has towards his wife is to provide physically, spiritually, and emotionally for his wife. So we'll talk about it under that heading of providing um, physically and financially. When I'm dealing with Christian couples and we're doing more things, I usually use, and you can maybe see it on the camera, this is Strengthening Your Marriage by Wayne Mack. Um, it's, it's really set up for people who are already married, but it's so well laid out and it's more of a workbook. So there'll be a little bit, you know, at the beginning of every chapter, we'll kind of lay out what he's going to deal with. But then there'll be five to 10 pages of looking up scripture verses and kind of lead questions of what can be done um, or, or what ought to be done. So um, I use that a lot with different couples. What I in that book itself, it has one full chapter on finance. So it probably goes through, you know, two to three dozen biblical passages that they're just looking up with some questions and giving some some overview kind of things as well. And that's where I'll spend a lot more time with Christian couples going through the biblical principles for that. So in the short one, I'm just reminding the husband. Look, you have a responsibility to care for your bride um, financially. Um, it doesn't mean that the wife can't work out of the home. Um, there, there's such, a, but it's your responsibility. You need to make sure you're taking care of your family. Um, with the Christian couples, there's a lot more time spent on that. And I also spend a lot of time discipling young men. And one of the things I do can you, can I say pre premarital counseling, even before they're engaged is reminding them if they're not in a position to financially take care of a wife, they ought not to be asking a woman to be their wife if they can't take care of them yet. So they need to get their household in order and make sure they're in a position where they could do that. How can you go to some girl's father and say, can I, can I marry your daughter when you're not able to take care of her or to provide for her? Right. What, what um, scriptures do you cover when speaking about finances with a premarital couple? In the general, I usually start, you know, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks about seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. So there, there's lots of pressures in life. There's all kinds of things that God knows that you need, um, food, shelter, clothing, all those things. And it was always, if you put God first in every area of your marriage, the Lord will provide for everything. So when I point them to that passage, I say, you know, you, you can't be putting money first. You can't even be putting your marriage first. Any of these things become idols, and God will go on an idol-destroying mission in your life. But if you put him first, and then from there, I could go into, well, what are some biblical principles of wealth management? How do you seek first the kingdom of God with your money? Well, tithing's one. We want to honor God with, with our money. So in Malachi, when it talks about bringing the tithing, or like Proverbs 3, like you read in the beginning, of honoring God with, with our wealth. Now we're going to say, well, well honors God. We, we need to tithe. We need to, as we're able, give above the tithe and our free will offerings to care for people. We ought to be very generous with our money. Um, we also need to seek to, um, the Westminster 
you know, larger and shorter catechism, which goes through the Ten Commandments under thou shalt not steal. It talks about the positive duty, one of it being doing all we can lawfully to increase our own and our neighbor's estate. So so you you also have a, a, a duty for the Lord to be trying to increase your estate as much as you can lawfully. So you can't, you know, that gets to a lot of just wisdom things of, you tell me, you know, don't spend tomorrow's money today. But invest today's money for your needs for tomorrow, <laughs> um, because I see that a lot with young couples that you know with easy credit. Let me just spend tomorrow's money. You know, let's do this. Talk about things like coveting coming from the tenth commandment. Instead of coveting, you look at what your siblings might have in their marriage. You might look at what your parents have in their marriage. Other things that well, I want that. I want it now. Um, you know, with my own boys, I've been able to remind them. You know, we didn't own a house until I was married for twenty years because I lived in a manse. I wasn't paid a housing allowance. We had set up a housing equity um, replacement fund, but it took many years. And I, I took my my army pay for all those years. Half of it I put aside for 10 years to put that as a down payment to. So it took that many years to save up enough money to be able to buy a house. So I remind my boys, sometimes, this isn't how your mother and I started with a big house and having these things. We had to put away and save and not spend on other things for many, many years. So I try to remind them, look, these are things you look forward to in marriage you get later on. The other is find your identity in Christ and not in your things. Um, I remember in Bible college, one of my professors and all my professors were either pastors or missionaries, didn't have much. And they gave a really good bit of advice. And they said, you need to decide even things when it comes to a car. Does, Does your vehicle say who you are, make a statement about who you are as a person, or is it purely an, a tool to get you from point A to point B safely and economically? And I've tried to model that for my kids and point that out to the kids who've grown up in our church and what I do premarital counseling. I mean, you could go out and spend a lot of money on a fancy car because you want to make a statement of who you are, or you could just get the, the safest, most dependable car. It'll save you money and do things. And, and your car says nothing about you because identi- your identity is in Christ. You I mean Christ-like, not in the stuff you have. I don't know, Pastor Zozar. When I lived in Pennsylvania, I think my truck told me I was a redneck. <laughs> well, my, my son is in that same thing. If you look at his truck and all the stickers that are in the back window, um, my youngest son, you would say that. Um, but all of it, like my, my, my middle son, we went things with and my first son. When he got his first car, um, his car had crashed. He had to get another car. The cheapest car we could get with insurance money, he, there was a car he could get. It's only a three-cylinder engine, and it's a stick shift. And he didn't know how to drive a, sil- a, a stick shift, but it was a good four to $5,000 less than anything else. So I said, look, this you're still in college. You can save a lot of money on gas with this. You have the insurance money. It'll pay for the whole thing. You'll have a little left over. All the other cars you're looking at are more than your insurance money. He bought that and he's been thanking me for that advice since then. I taught him, it took a month. He drove my car while he learned how to learn stick shift. But now that he's married, that car saved him so much money, especially with gas prices going up. So it's little things like that. I've tried to model for the young people in our church and for my own sons in, in these things. I know that a lot of people, when I talk with them, are surprised when I tell them that there's over 2000 verses in the Bible dealing with money, wealth, and generosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you, if you read the book of Proverbs, for example, time and again, uh, you know, you know, the, the sage, you know, uh, uh, or Solomon is just providing sound financial advice. Uh, if you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, 
Solomon even tells you that you should diversify your investments. Uh, and so, it, you know, when I talk to unbelievers, it's very common that I'll tell them, hey, you know, you may not believe in the Bible or what the Bible teaches, but this is wisdom that is eternal. <laughs> this is, you know, diversifying your investments. You know, any financial advisor is going to tell you to do that. And here, this truth is found in the Bible. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you was, what kind of problems have you seen with married couples uh, in your ministry regarding finances and money? I think it's, um, it's the two biggest problems are, are one is spending more than they have. It's just because they've been brought up, their parents knew nothing about financial management. Uh, many I see, I've been here long enough to see multiple generations. And sometimes you see there's a pattern in the family of just living a little bit beyond your means. And they just, they get into debt early, whether it's buying cars, you know, they, they get their first job, they go out and, and buy a fancy car and they, they're going to finance it. And they just never get out of that debt cycle. They're just never able to get ahead. At best, they can get to where they're just keeping their head above water. The other that I've seen um, tragically is not having life insurance where we've had a few where you've had have a widow that the, the husband dies very young. Um, we've had some tragedies. Like we've had a few people that, you know, where the husband dies, you know, when he's younger than 50, something younger than 40, um, still young children in the house or raising a grandchild or something, no life insurance. And then they're just behind the eight ball from then on because they could just never catch up. Um, just trying to keep a, a, a roof over their heads and providing for their children and, and with the church being trying to be very generous through the deacons, but realize they will not make it outside of um, support from the government and for support from the church because the husband wasn't thinking ahead to what happens if I die. And I usually that's part of the premarital counseling. I usually talk to couples and say, you really at least the husband, you need to make sure you have some level of, ins of life insurance to take care of it. Worst case scenario, if something happens to you, because I've seen it tragically in a few cases. And it's almost a, it puts you so far behind, especially a woman who's still raising children. How is she going to get ahead at that and just make up? It's just tragic. It is. Yeah. One of the things that I talk to couples preparing for marriage in my own church or just couples that I know is like, hey, you're, you're 26 years old. You're getting ready to get married. I just had this conversation yesterday with a couple in Texas. They've been married four years. They have a 10-month-old. He's about to graduate law school, and he's afraid he can't afford life insurance. He's in good health. He's 26 years old. $2 million of term life insurance is going to cost him less than $70 a month. Wow. $2 million. So, you know, and, he, and we're going to get him into $2 million because he's going to be an attorney with a good income, mm -hmm. and he's super young. You know, imagine what a million dollars of term insurance is going to cost a 26-year-old in good health. This doesn't need to be a expensive thing. You know, well, what, what I've told, I mean, like in my situation, I was, when I was sort of as a minister, I was making almost nothing. So I was, the best I could do was term insurance. It just, I got the most I could get for the money I had. But my thought was, I at least need to cover if something happens to me. I need to make sure my wife and children have a roof over their head and my wife was homeschooled. So I want her to not have to work so she can continue homeschooling. So there needs to be enough to at least to provide for those things. So that kind of give, give, gave me my target amount, what I need to look for 
right. in terms of coverage. And that's what I try to remind couples is like, you know, it, it's everybody's income is a little bit different. Most of the people I deal with are on the poor or so middle class or below or, or, or to, into poverty. So, but you need to have at least enough to provide food, shelter and clothing. And if you want your spouse being able to stay home and take care of the children, at least when they're young, there needs to be enough there that they're not working. So you need to factor that in. And it's, you know, it's one of those cases of can you afford not to have insurance? You know, unless you're independently wealthy, you have so much money put away. It's and I don't know anybody. I've never met anybody in my ministry that's in that situation. It really is. It's not that expensive to have for the coverage that you have, because life is like I said, we we had guys die that they were not, there was no disease involved. There was no underlying thing. One was a terrible car crash. One was another, just an accident. I mean, I almost died two years ago. I'm coming with my two year anniversary in February. Um, I had an aneurysm. I never knew. I had a heart valve issue, created an aneurysm all my time through the army, never knew. And then I know where I'm working out. I pass out. You're wondering what's wrong. I go to church on Sunday. I'm in the middle of the service. I had to just say, I'm going to do the rest of the service sitting down because I know something's wrong. I had my wife take me to ER right afterwards. And they're like, you're not leaving the hospital because you have an aneurysm that's about to burst and you're not going home until we deal with this. Um, you just, now I'm still, you know, in my fifties, so I'm not that young anymore. I know I, I look like I'm in my eighties on the screen, um, <laughs> but um, it's ministry's rough on you. Ages you. Um, over 40. But but knowing that, like I looked at that, I said, boy, it was a good thing I had life insurance and all those things that had my family covered because I could have just it was only by God's mercy that I wasn't someplace else where, you know, I was an out wasn't out. I used to hunt on this mountain. We had 100 acres in the woods. I could have died, you know, passed out from hiking back there and I would have never made it back. So you just don't know and you need to provide. So insurance is such a big thing. Yeah, I, I'm I'm really glad you brought that up because. Um, it's one of the things that I talk about a lot, and I'm a big believer in, in in life insurance. And a lot of times, couples think, "Wow, a million dollar term life and policy—that's so much money." And then we start talking about, you know, what their living expenses are and what it costs to bury an individual. And you quickly realize that a million dollars may be able to to be enough to get them some level of, of living, but it's they're not going to be living high on the hog. They're not going to be a millionaire. Right. Mm -hmm. exactly. uh, and, and so it's, you know, very basic step. And, and, you know, there are people who get married later in life. There are people who maybe um, have a failed marriage and they get remarried or maybe a spouse who passes away. And off, more often than not, I see that there are older couples, you know, 50s and even 60s, who needs some type of life insurance policy. Mm -hmm. uh, and they often need more than they think. And there's different ways to calculate all of that. Um, Crystal, one of our listeners had a question about premarital couples and combining finances. Um, can you read that for us? Sure. Um, James from Texas writes, what are the pros and cons of having a split bank account and does having a joint bank account strengthen a marriage? I don't recommend having um, split bank accounts. Um, I just think it gives opportunity because there's the idea of, well, here's my money and there's your money. And when you're married, you become one. Everything is everyone's. Um, this is the, is the family's money. I, I know some couples have done that because either they brought debt into the marriage or other things. 
I do not advise it unless there's some kind of extenuating circumstances why that's necessary. Um, you know, sometimes with, with my own son, he's been, you know, he's just been married for a year. I keep sometimes we'll talk about, well, you know, my wife is going to put in this. I was like, you're forgetting. It's all of your money. It's your expenses as a couple. You don't have your expenses and her expenses. It's yours as a couple. And you need to get um, thinking that way. I mean, in, in our marriage, my wife, very right after we got married, she started working at a bank just as a teller. So it'd just be easier for her to go and deposit my check. I haven't, I don't think I've seen a paycheck in 30 years or have been in a bank for that. I trust her. It's something I delegate to. She's much better with numbers. I'm dyslexic, so I reverse numbers. So it's always a mess anyway when I put them down. But all of our bills are ours. All of our funds are ours. And I think it starts with that mindset. Um, does that demand having the same bank account? Not necessarily. It can still be it's all of ours. We have different things. But I think it helps to that end to just say, look, this is all of ours together. It's not one or the other. I, I really think your point is very wise. Uh, one of the things when I've done premarital counseling, I've had several ministers send me their premarital couples to just talk about the finance portion of their premarital counseling. And one of the things that I do is I straight up ask each individual, starting with the man, you know, what is your debt? Mm -hmm. Your student loans, your credit cards, how much money do you make? <laughs> and then ask the other individual, did you know that? Mm -hmm. And yeah. sometimes I've heard, well, I knew they had some, but I didn't know how much. And then we have a, a conversation and then I ask the, and then I ask the woman the same questions. Uh, and then we start talking about things like, you know, goal setting. And, you know, the first year is about, you know, combining the finances and, and setting the budget and, you know, getting used to being married and having combined uh, assets, uh, you know, getting the life insurance in place. And then, you know, midterm is, you know, setting up, some sort of savings program, whether it's a Roth IRA or, or some other type of, of way to build wealth or saving for a down payment on a home, those kinds of things. And then long-term goals. And we talk about, you know, having a family, uh, set of family values and mission statement that help guide the family through their decision-making throughout the course of their marriage. Now that sounds very wise and very, very detailed. To me, when it comes to the details, a lot of it depends on the particular couple. Some will have a lot of questions on it and they really want some help with it. Others have things somewhat somewhat figured out and they've got a good idea where it's going. I know like, some have gone through like Dave Ramsey or other things like that and they've looked at things like that or one of them have and they've at least been interacting with some things and, and have heard some, some things on it. Um, I find with, with premarital counseling in Westminster, I took a class with Dr. John Bettler. He taught, taught a class on, on marriage and I found it to be true. He had said he didn't spend a whole lot of time on premarital counseling. He said, usually by the time they come to you, they are so committed to they are getting married that they're not hearing a word you're saying. Um, and there's some truthfulness to that. In fact, I would tell the couples a lot of times, say, look, I know like, you don't really listen to a lot of what's being said in premarital counseling because in the back of your head, what you're saying is, Pastor, you don't understand. I know other people need to hear that, but you don't understand. We are really in love. We are in love like no couple has ever been in love before. So none of these things will ever be an issue for us. I said, well, just remember, you know, after six months of marriage, when reality smacks you in the face, 
you could come back and we could talk a little bit more and we could go back over some of these things or maybe go back through the workbook by Max and start working through it again. Because now you're starting to realize, oh, yeah, I, I wasn't really paying attention to these things. Um, and sadly, with finance, when it happens is by the time they come back to you, sometimes they're really in trouble. Yeah. Um, but I have found that that is more often than not the case, even when there's been red flags and you start pointing out to one, you know, there's some real issues here going on. A lot of times they're like, you don't understand. We are in love. You don't get it. And all you can do is be honest with them um, and say, look, I'll be there for you. If you want to come back, we can do a checkup in three months, six months after you've, after you're married, let's talk about some of these things. Uh, I wish more stuff was done on the pre-engagement side. Um, I do use some books on there. There was one uh, guy, John Yenchko, who was pastor at New Life um, PCA. I think it's the one in Jenkintown. It's near it's near Westminster. He had done a little book called Should I Marry and Should I Marry You? And I'll, a little book, which is for pre-engagement things. And I'll try to get that into couples' hands. There's also been a recent book. I forget who put it out, but I think it's called a Letters to a Romantic on Engagement. And I've used that a few times and given that out so they can at least because it deals with not only finances, but get all different areas to try to bring up where there might be red flag issues or things even look about when you're first engaged or even before you get engaged. Like these are things you really need to think about and work through. Um, I mean, I go back for it when I'm when I'm discipling the men at the young men at the church. I even talk about say, you know. You're not. Unless you're ready to get married, you're in a position where you can look towards marriage, you shouldn't even be dating. I mean, it's one thing, and I dis- distinguish that from going on dates. It's one thing to go on dates and get to know somebody. You know, obviously, there's a need for that. But so be- before you're starting to be exclusive in dating somebody, there needs to be, can we say, a- 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 an off-ramp or a way for, the- for this plane to take flight at the end of the runway. If you're not in a position where you could be getting married, you shouldn't be getting serious with somebody. Because it's gonna- just going to end up in one of two disasters, either moral failure or in heartbreak, neither one of which is good. So I try to start with the guys that I'm mentoring throughout their life as growing up in a church, starting when they're very young and just looking at dating and getting yourself ready, becoming a godly man, getting yourself in a position where you can look to take a wife. And then going from there, you know, do, do you have kind of the boxes checked? So now that you're now you're ready to go and do that. Um, again, that's different than my work as a chaplain. As a chaplain, it was like you just deal with what you've got there. And a lot of times they've heard nothing. Um, it, it's more of a, a train wreck. Um, and that's where, like Keith, you were talking about before about saying, well, there's just wisdom here in Scripture if you're not a believer. Sometimes I'll get guys come to me and say, well, you know, I don't want any of this religious stuff. But, you know, the first sergeant sent me to talk to you or if I want to get married, I know I've got to go through this stuff. So I said, well, you know, if you just want a listening ear, like you don't want, I could do that. I could just sit here and listen. I said, but the only advice I could give you comes from scripture. I mean, I have, I have nothing to give you outside of there that's of any real worth. And usually after I've listened and I've talked the whole thing, they'll say, well, what do you think? I said, well, I told you, I'd listen, you said you don't want any religious stuff. I said, well, I guess it couldn't hurt. What does the Bible have to say? And then I'll lay it out. And a lot of times I'm like, oh, well, I never realized the Bible talked about things like money or other things like that. And it gives me an, that always gave me an opportunity then um, to share that. And it's amazing how well it was received um, ordinarily. What I have seen also, uh, just knowing many ministers in the Reformed and even the non-Reformed traditions is that a lot of ministers don't even realize how much the Bible talks about money. 
uh, and they and and their own family lives don't reflect biblical principles of money, wealth, and generosity. And it's just an they they just don't know that that part of of scripture's teaching. And it's it's not totally a surprise mm -hmm. uh, because I think there's a lot of feelings. Um, you know, people have these ideas of that money is private and uh, other unbiblical ideas out there uh, on money, wealth, and generosity. Well, when it comes to ministers, too, some of the problem is, frankly, I think a lot of congregations don't want their ministers too well versed in money because they'd realize that they're not being paid the livable wage and they're really being taken advantage of. There's a lot of pressure in ministry to you need to learn to live by faith. Um, you know, the OPC just started a thing with the, the um, Committee for Ministerial Care, and they've come up with a whole tool now to come up with. This is what you should be paid. And that tool wasn't there when I became a minister. You had nothing to go to objectively and say, this is what a minister should be paid. And what churches would look back and say, well, we had a minister back in the 60s and we paid him this. And that should be enough for you as well. And it's created a lot of ministers when they get to retirement. They can't retire or they're living in poverty in retirement or their widow is living in poverty. Um, so I, I applaud our denomination for taking that step and doing that and objective, giving an objective tool. And a lot of ministers, frankly, now should probably be bivocational like I am because they're, they're church cannot pay them a livable wage and they need to have other opportunities. But if they're not doing that and looking out for their own family, it's hard for them to counsel couples and say, well, this is what you should be doing because they're not doing it themselves. They're, 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 they're getting themselves in debt. They don't have insurance. They don't have other things. Um, it creates great bitterness in their families towards the church and other things. It's really a problem. The other thing that I've seen um, is guys training for ministry who are leaving all the basically leaving it to their wife to support them until they get into ministry. So you support me through college, you support me through seminary. Oh, and I'm really liking the academic life. So why don't you support me through my PhD? And then someday I'll get a real job and I'll support, I'll start supporting you. And that creates a bad um, example, I think, for the men in the church of just saying, look, just live off the woman in your life. Let her fund everything. Let her fund all what you're doing. And then your money is kind of yours. Um, I've seen it tragically in some men who want who who think they're called to ministry and they're not. They're not ordained ministers, but they want to spend their life doing Bible studies and going on mission trips and doing all these things. But they don't get a real job. So the wife spent is stuck holding the bag, um, or deacons are spent are, are stuck, you know, basically taking care of a family because the husband is sure that he's supposed to be in ministry, but he's never been called by a church. But he just wants to do these things so he doesn't get a real job, and and it's tragic. And really, again, for the family, it sets a bad example to people outside. I mean, Scripture says if a man doesn't take home his care of his own family, he's worse than an unbeliever. And what does that say? But that's that's a real problem that I see in, in some people that are going into ministry. You know, that kind of segues into a listener question. We have John from Texas. He writes, how do couples best manage finances when one of the spouses is not financially responsible? Some of it is finance. Part of, you know, part of marriage is, well, in, in Genesis, we're told God created the woman as a helpmeet for them. So she's there to be a helper. So some of it is negotiating a marriage. Where can a wife really help her husband? Where is she not capable of doing that? She doesn't have the, the skills, the abilities. So I'm not going to delegate to my wife things that she can't handle, she's not capable of. Um, 
but it's in, a, our, in our in our marriage words work my wife is very good at um bookkeeping other things she's very detail oriented and things and i'm not but she doesn't have any training in say investments in, in investing and looking sure so i in our finances i take can we say the forward looking side of things i handle all of our investment all our retirement plans or iras all that i've set that all up i fund that but she does the day-to-day bookkeeping paying the bills so we delegate it out to both work to our strengths when you have a marriage where one person in a marriage just is not good at this don't delegate that to them some ways a wife i know some couples where the wife is really good at money management for whatever reason she doesn't really have training in it she's just good at it where the husband is terrible at it. i just say let your wife handle that then <laughs> let her do that because we'll make sure all the bills are paid on time everything's done ask her if there's any money left over to go do fun things um other areas if the wife is just not good at it then the husband said well i can't delegate that to my wife i need to handle that myself so it's a question of just looking at your skill sets. What are you gifted at? You can't just say, well, I don't like doing this. I'm going to let my spouse do it. Or I want to handle this because I'm not good at it, but I just want to be able to spend whatever I want want, and not care about how this destroys our our family. So looking at skills and abilities and delegating within the marriage, who is best equipped to be able to handle this part of our life? And I also think that another part of it is that, you know, you, if you don't, if neither spouse is, is adequate or, or competent in a particular skill with their finances, the Bible tells us we should have many advisors. And sometimes it, it might not be a financial advisor. It might be a, you know, what they call a money coach who helps with the budgeting and the debt. Uh, it might be a financial advisor, maybe asking someone who's more experienced in your church, maybe an older man or an older woman, maybe a deacon. Mm-hmm. who can help kind of give some guidance and we need to, to create a platform for premarital and young married and even married couples old married couples uh to have that ability to ask for help i have a minister um colleague in Presbyterian new jersey he was a lawyer before he was a minister he's managed a lot of money and done things and he does a lot of work with young men or with, or with couples, or if there's a diaconal need to come to the church, where he goes through a whole financial assessment with them and will start working through with them. It, it's very, very good. Um, I've asked him to talk to our deacons a few times about how to do that with people who come in need. So within the body of Christ, there's lots of other resources that we often have. We say, I could go to these people and have them help us. Um, it's, there just needs to be that humility of saying, I need help. Right. And can somebody look at this? Sometimes people just get embarrassed. I've gotten myself in so much trouble, again, especially financially. Even people who were wealthy couldn't get themselves into trouble because they didn't, when, when, when there was lots of money coming in, it wasn't a problem. But now things have turned and we've seen that happen. And now they're in a lot of trouble and they need to have the humility to come back and say, look, I really need help now. Um, One of the resources that I encourage people to look at, you know, there's many different things in the Christian world here in this country, you know, there's Financial Peace University with Dave Ramsey. While, while, you know, here at Faith and Money, we see some benefit in the Dave Ramsey approach, we also think that it has some pretty glaring weaknesses. Uh, so what I really point people to instead of Financial Peace University is Crown Financial Ministries, which was founded in the 80s by uh, Larry Burkett, has some really phenomenal, wise, biblically-based resources 
on on financial management, you know, budgeting, debt, investments. Uh, they have a coaching ministry. Uh, it's just really a fantastic uh, organization. Um, and so that would be another resource that I would point to married couples and, and even churches. churches. Larry Burkett was his book, I think it's Investing for the Future or something like that, came out in like the late 80s, early 90s. That's the book I read. Um, when I was still in seminary and, and that got me thinking in terms of what do I need to do in terms of investments and other things. And I still recommend that. And some of they had a, book, a series of smaller books that um, I, I've had my boys read it. Sometimes just read a topic here or there. I found his stuff very good, very helpful. Well, I mean, the thing about biblical stewardship is that the, the principles are timeless. They're valid for everybody who no matter what their net worth is no matter where they live and when they live. You know, it, it's valid for the person who lived in AD 100. It's valid for the people who live in 2023. And if the Lord doesn't return, it'll be valid in the year, you know, 40,000. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and so uh, thank you so much for coming on today, uh, Reverend Zazaro. Uh, if you are in New Jersey and are looking for a biblically faith faithful church i would really point you to uh the orthodox presbyterian church uh calvary opc in cape may uh we thank you for coming on today and next week crystal and i will be interviewing a gentleman uh who wants to tell his story uh about how he and his wife skipped the financial section on premarital counseling and and tell us about what happened in his marriage so We'll, we'll hear his story next week. But thank, well, thank, you. thank you, Keith and Crystal, for having me on. I hope this was helpful to you all. Um, it was enjoyable to spend some time with you this afternoon. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you, God James. God bless your labors. God bless you too, and thank you for your service. You're welcome.